0: Part 2 of Speech by Edmund Burke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Speech given to the House of Commons on the 22nd of March, 1775 by Edmund Burke. On Conciliation with America by Edmund Burke, 1775. In forming a plan for this purpose, I endeavored to put myself in that frame of mind which is the most natural and the most reasonable, and which is certainly the most probable means of securing me from all error. I set out with a perfect distrust of my own abilities, a total renunciation of every speculation of my own, with a profound reverence for the wisdom of our ancestors who have left us the inheritance of so happy a constitution and so flourishing an empire, and, what is a thousand times more valuable the treachery of the maxims and principles which formed the one and obtained the other during the reigns of the kings of spain of the austrian family whenever they were at a loss in the spanish councils it was common for their statesmen to say they ought to consult the genius of philip the second the genius of philip the second might mislead them and the issue of their affair showed that they had not chosen the most perfect standard but sir i am sure that i shall not be misled when in the case of constitutional difficulty i consult the genius of the english constitution consulting at that oracle it was with all due humility and piety i found four capital examples and a similar case before me those of ireland wales chester and durham ireland before the english conquest though never governed by a despotic power had no parliament how far the english parliament itself was at that time modelled according to the present form is disputed among antiquaries we have all the reason in the world to be assured that a form of parliament such as England then enjoyed, she instantly communicated to Ireland. And we are equally sure that almost every successful improvement in constitutional liberty, as fast as it was made here, was transmitted thither. The feudal baronage and the feudal knighthood, the roots of our primitive constitution, were early transplanted into that soil and grew and flourished there. Magna Carta, if it did not give us originally the House of Commons, Gave us at least a House of Commons of weight and consequence. While your ancestors did not churlishly sit down alone to the feast of Magna Carta, Ireland was made immediately a partaker. This benefit of English laws and liberties, I confess, was not at first extended to all Ireland. Mark the consequence. English authority and English liberties had exactly the same boundaries. Your standard can never be advanced an inch before your privileges. Sir John Davis shows beyond a doubt that the refusal of a general communication of these rights was the true cause why Ireland was 500 years in subduing. And after the vain projects of a military government attempted in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, it was soon discovered that nothing could make that country English in civility and allegiance but your laws and your forms of legislature. It was not English arms, but the English Constitution that conquered Ireland. From that time, Ireland has ever had a general parliament, as she had before a partial parliament you changed the people you altered the religion but you never touched the form of the vital substance of free government in that kingdom you deposed kings you restored them you altered the succession to theirs as well as to your own crown but you never altered the constitution the principle of which was respected by usurpation restored with the restoration of monarchy and established i trust forever by the glorious revolution this has made ireland the great and flourishing kingdom that it is and from a disgrace and a burthen intolerable to this nation has rendered her a principal part of our strength and ornament. This country cannot be said to have ever formally taxed her, The regular things done in the confusion of mighty troubles and on the hinge of great revolutions, even if all were done that is said to have been done, form no example. If they have any effect in argument, they make an exception to prove the rule. None of your own liberties could stand a moment if the casual deviations from them at such times Were suffered to be used as proofs of their nullity. By the lucrative amount of such casual breaches in the constitution, judge what the stated and the fixed rule of supply has been in that kingdom. Your Irish pensioners would starve if they had no other fund to live on than taxes granted by English authority. Turn your eyes to those popular grants from whence all your great supplies are come, and learn to respect that only source of public wealth in the British Empire. My next example is Wales. This country is said to be reduced by Henry III. It was said more truly to be so by Edward I. But though then conquered, it was not looked upon as any part of the realm of England. Its old constitution, whatever that might have been, was destroyed, and no good one was substituted in its place. The care of that tract was put into the hands of Lord's Marchers, a of government of a very singular kind, a strange, heterogeneous monster, something between hostility and government. Perhaps there is a sort of resemblance according to the modes of those terms, that of Commander-in-Chief at present, to whom all civil power is granted as secondary. The manners of the Welsh nation followed the genius of the government. The people were ferocious, restive, savage, and uncultivated, sometimes composed, never pacified. Wales within itself was in perpetual disorder, and it kept the frontier of England in perpetual alarm. Benefits from it to the state were none. Wales is only known to England by incursion and invasion. Sir, during that state of things, Parliament was not idle. They attempted to subdue the fierce spirit of the Welsh by all sorts of rigorous laws. They prohibited by statute the sending all sorts of arms into Wales, as you prohibited by proclamation, with something more of doubt on the legality. The sending arms to America, they disarmed the Welsh by statute, as you attempted, but still with more question on the legality. To disarm New England by an instruction. They made an act to drag offenders from Wales into England for trial, as you have done, but with more hardship with regard to America. By another act, where one of the parties was an Englishman, they ordained that his trial should always be by English. They made acts to restrain trade, as you do. They prevented the Welsh from the use of fairs and markets, as you do the Americans from fisheries and foreign ports. In short, when the statute book was not quite so much swelled as it is now, you find no less than fifteen acts of penal regulation on the subject of Wales. Here we rub our hands, a fine body of precedents for the authority of Parliament and the use of it. I admit it fully, and pray let la- add likewise to these precedents that all the while Wales rid this kingdom like an incubus, that it was an unprofitable and oppressive burthen, that an Englishman travelling in that country could not go six yards from the high road without being murdered. The march of the human mind is slow. Sir, it was not until after two hundred years discovered that, by an internal law, Providence had decreed vexation to violence and poverty to rapine. Your ancestors did, however, at length open their eyes to the ill husbandry of injustice. They found that the tyranny of a free people could of all tyrannies the least be endured, and that laws made against a whole nation were not the most effectual methods of securing its obedience accordingly in the twenty-seventh year of henry the eighth the course was entirely altered with a preamble stating the entire and perfect rights of the crown of england it gave to the welsh all the rights and privileges of english subjects a political order was established the military power gave way to the civil the marches were turned into counties but that a nation should have a right to english liberties and yet no share at all in the fundamental security of those liberties the grant of their own property seemed to think so incongruous that, eight years after, that is, in the thirty-fifth of that reign, a complete and not ill-proportioned representation by counties and boroughs was bestowed upon Wales by Act of Parliament. From that moment, as by a charm, the tumult subsided, obedience was restored, peace, order, and civilization followed in the train of liberty. When the day-starved English constitution had arisen in their hearts, all was harmony within and without simul alba nautis stella refulsit defluit saxis agitatus humo considunt venti fugiuntque nubes et minax quod sic voluere ponto unda recumbit the very same year the country palatine of chester received the same relief from its oppressions and the same remedy to its disorders before this time chester was little less distempered than wales the inhabitants without rights themselves were the fittest to destroy the rights of others and from thence richard the second drew the standing army of archers with which for a time he oppressed england the people of chester applied to parliament and a petition penned as i shall read to you to the king our sovereign lord and most honourable wise shewing unto your excellent majesty the inhabitants of your graces county palatine of chester one that where the said county palatine of chester is and hath always hitherto exempt excluded and separated out and from your high court of parliament to have any knights and burgesses within the said court by reason whereof the said inhabitants have hitherto sustained manifold disherisons losses and damages as well in their lands goods and bodies as in the good civil and politic governance and maintenance of the commonwealth of their said county two and forasmuch as much as the said inhabitants have always hitherto been bound by the acts and statutes made and ordained by your said highness and your most noble progenitors by authority of the said court as far forth as other countries cities and boroughs have been that have had their knights and burgesses within your said court of parliament and yet have had neither knight nor burgess therefore said county palatine the said inhabitants for lack thereof have been oftentimes touched and grieved with acts and statutes made within the said court, as well derogatory unto the most ancient jurisdictions, liberties, and privileges of your said county palatine, as prejudicial unto the commonwealth, quietness, rest, and peace of your grace's most bounden subjects inhabiting within the same. What did Parliament with this audacious address? Rejected as libel, treated as an affront to government, spurn it as a derogation, from the rights of legislature did they toss it over the table did they burn it by the hands of the common hangman they took the petition of grievance all rugged as it was without softening or temperament unpurged of the original bitterness and indignation of complaint they made it the very preamble to their act of redress and consecrated its principle to all ages in the sanctuary of legislation here is my third example it was attended with the success of the two former Chester, civilized as well as Wales, has demonstrated that freedom, and not servitude, is the cure of anarchy, as religion, and not atheism, is the true remedy for superstition. Sir, this pattern of Chester was followed in the reign of Charles II with regard to the County palatine of Durham, which is my fourth example. This county had long lain under the pale of free legislation. So scrupulously was the example of Chester followed that the style of of the preamble is nearly the same with that of the Chester Act, and, without affecting the abstract extent of the authority of Parliament, it recognizes the equity of not suffering any considerable district in which the British subjects may act as a body to be taxed without their own voice in the grant. Now, if the doctrines of policy contained in these preambles, and the force of these examples in the Acts of Parliament, avail anything, what can be said against applying them with regard to America? Are not the people of America as much Englishmen as the Welsh? The preamble of the act of Henry VIII says the Welsh speak a language no way resembling that of His Majesty's English subjects. Are the Americans not as numerous? If we may trust the learned and accurate Judge Barrington's account of North Wales, and take as a standard to measure the rest, there is no comparison. The people cannot amount to above 200,000, not a tenth part of the number in the colonies. Is America in rebellion? Wales was hardly ever free from it. Have you attempted to govern America by penal statutes? You made 15 for Wales. But your legislative authority is perfect with regard to America. Was it less perfect in Wales, Chester, and Durham? But America is virtually represented. What? Does an electric force of virtual representation more easily pass over the Atlantic than pervade Wales, which lies in your neighborhood, or than Chester and Durham? Surrounded by abundance of representation that is actual and palpable? But, sir, your ancestors thought this sort of virtual representation, however ample, to be totally insufficient for the freedom of the inhabitants of territories that are so near and comparatively so inconsiderable. How, then, can I think it sufficient for those which are infinitely greater and infinitely more remote? You will now, sir. Perhaps imagine that I am on the point of proposing to you a scheme for representation of the colonies in Parliament. Perhaps I might be inclined to entertain some such thought, but a great flood stops me in my course. Opposite natura, I cannot remove the eternal barriers of the creation. The thing, in that mode, I do not know to be possible. As I meddle with no theory, I do not absolutely assert the impracticability of such a representation, but I do not see my way to it and those who have been more confident have not been more successful. However, the arm of public benevolence is not shortened, and there are often several means to the same end. When nature has disjoined in one way, wisdom may unite in another. When we cannot give the benefit as we would wish, let us not refuse it altogether. If we cannot give the principle, let us find a substitute. But how? Where? What substitute? Fortunately, I am not obliged for the ways and means of this substitute to tax my own unproductive invention. I am not even obliged to go to the rich treasury of the fertile framers of imaginary commonwealths, not to the Republic of Plato, not to the Utopia of Moore, not to the Oceania of Harrington. It is before me, it is at my feet, and the rude swain treads daily on it with his clouted shoon. I only wish you to recognize, for the theory, the ancient constitutional policy of this kingdom with regard to representation, as that policy has been declared in Acts of Parliament, and as to the practice to return to that mode which a uniform experience has marked out to you as best, and in which you walked with security, advantage, and honor until the year 1763. My resolutions therefore mean to establish the equity and justice of a taxation of America by grant, and not by imposition to mark the legal competency of the colony assemblies with the support of their government in peace and for public aids in time of war. To acknowledge that this legal competency has had a dutiful and beneficial exercise and that experience has shown the benefit of their grants and the futility of parliamentary taxation as a method of supply. These solid truths compose six fundamental propositions there are three more resolutions corollary to these if you admit the first set you can hardly reject the others but if you admit the first i shall be far from solicitous whether you accept or refuse to last i think these six massive pillars will be of strength sufficient to support the temple of british concord i have no more doubt than i entertain of my existence that if you admitted these you would command an immediate peace and with but tolerable future management a lasting obedience in America. I am not arrogant in this confident assurance. The propositions are all mere matters of fact, and if they are such facts as draw irresistible conclusions even in the stating, this is the power of truth, and not any management of mine. Sir, I shall open the whole plan to you, together with such observations on the motions as may tend to illustrate them where they want explanation. The first is a resolution. That the colonies and plantations of Great Britain and North America, consisting of 14 separate governments and containing two millions and upwards of free inhabitants, have not had the liberty and privilege of electing and sending any Knights and Burgesses or others to represent them in the High Court of Parliament. As a plain matter of fact, necessary to be laid down and, accepting the description, is laid down in the language of the Constitution. It is taken nearly verbatim from Acts of Parliament. The second is like unto the first, that the said colonies and plantations have been liable to and bounden by several subsidies, payments, rates, and taxes given and granted by Parliament. For the said colonies and plantations have not their knights and burgesses in the said High Court of Parliament of their own election to represent the condition of their country, by lack whereof they have been oftentimes touched and grieved by subsidies given, granted, and assented to in the said Court. In a manner prejudicial to the commonwealth, quietness, rest, and the peace of the subjects inhabiting within the same. Is this description too hot or too cold, too strong or too weak? Does it arrogate too much to the supreme legislature? Does it lean too much to the claims of the people? If it runs into any of these errors, the fault is not mine. It is the language of your own ancient acts of parliament, Namus exermo quo prorsipi. Ophelus, rusticus, abnormus sapiens, it is the genuine produce of the ancient, rustic, manly, home-bred sense of this country. I do not dare to rub up a particle of the venerable rust that rather adorns and preserves, than destroys the metal. It would be a profanation to touch with a tool the stones which construct the sacred altar of peace. I would not violate, with modern polish, the ingenuous and noble roughness of these truly constitutional materials. Above all things, I was resolved not to be guilty of tampering, the odious vice of restless and unstable minds. I put my foot in the tracks of our forefathers, where I could neither wander nor stumble. Determining to fix articles of peace, I was resolved not to be wise beyond what was written. I was resolved to use nothing else than the form of sound words, to let others abound in their own sense, and carefully to abstain from all expressions of my own. Where the law is said, I say, in all things else I am silent. I have no organ but for her words. This, if it be not ingenuous, I am sure it is safe. There are indeed words expressive of grievance in the second resolution which those who are resolved always to be in the right will deny to contain matter-of-fact, as applied to the present case, although Parliament thought them to be true with regard to the counties of Chester and Durham. They will deny that Americans were ever touched and grieved with the taxes. If they consider nothing in taxes but their weight as pecuniary impositions, there may be some pretense for this denial, but men may be sorely touched and deeply grieved in their privileges as well as in their purses. Men may lose little in property by the act which takes away all their freedom. When a man is robbed of a trifle on the highway, It is not the two-pence loss that constitutes the capital outrage. This is not confined to privileges. Even ancient indulgences, withdrawn without offence on the part of those who enjoyed such favours, operate as grievances. But were the Americans then not touched and grieved by the taxes, in some measure merely as taxes? If so, why were they almost all either wholly repealed or exceedingly reduced? Were they not touched and grieved, even by the regulating duties of the six of George II? Else, why were the duties first reduced to one-third in 1764, and afterwards to a third of that third, in the year 1766? Were they not touched and grieved by the Stamp Act? I should say they were, until that tax is revived. Were they not touched and grieved by the duties of 1767, which were likewise repealed, and which Lord Hillsborough tells you, for the ministry, contrary to the true principle of commerce? Is not the assurance given by that noble person to the colonies of a resolution to lay no more taxes on them and admission that taxes would touch and grieve them? Is not the resolution of the noble lord and the blue ribbon now standing on your journals the strongest of all proofs that parliamentary subsidies really touched and grieved them? Else why all these changes, modifications, repeals, assurances and resolutions? The next proposition is that, from the distance of the said colonies, and from other circumstances, no method hath hitherto been devised for procuring a representation in Parliament for the said colonies. This is an assertion of a fact. I go no further on the paper, though, in my private judgment, a useful representation is impossible. I am sure it is not desired by them, nor ought it perhaps by us, but I abstain from opinions. The fourth resolution is. That each of the said colonies hath within itself a body chosen in part or in the whole by the freemen, freeholders, or other free inhabitants thereof, commonly called a general assembly or a general court, with powers legally to raise, levy, and assess, according to the several usages of such colonies, duties and taxes towards defraying all sorts of public services. This competence in the colony assemblies is certain it is proved by the whole tenor of their acts of supply in all the assemblies, in which the constant style of granting is, an aid to His Majesty, and acts granting to the Crown have regularly for near a century passed the public offices without dispute. Those who have been pleased paradoxically to deny this right, holding that none by the British Parliament can grant to the Crown, are wished to look to what is done not only in the colonies, but in Ireland, in one uniform, unbroken tenor, every session. Sir, I am surprised that this doctrine should come from some of the law servants of the Crown. I say that if the Crown could be responsible, His Majesty, but certainly the Ministers, and even these law officers themselves, through which hands the acts passed by annually in Ireland, or annually in the colonies, are in a habitual course of committing impeachable offences. Would habitual offenders have been all Presidents of the Council, all Secretaries of State, all First Lords of Trade, all Attorneys, and all Solicitors general? however they are safe as no one impeaches them and there is no ground of charge against them except in their own unfounded theories the fifth resolution is also a resolution of fact that the said general assemblies general courts or other bodies legally qualified as aforesaid have at sundry times freely granted several large subsidies and public aids for his majesty's service According to their abilities, and required thereto by letter from one of His Majesty's principal secretaries of state, and that their right to grant the same, and their cheerfulness and sufficiency in the said grants, have been at sundry times acknowledged by Parliament. To say nothing of their great expenses in the Indian Wars, and not to take their exertion for one so high as the supplies in the year 1695, and not to go back to their public contributions in the year 1710, I shall begin to travel only where the journals give me light resolving to deal in nothing but fact, authenticated by parliamentary record, and to build myself wholly on that solid basis. On the 4th of April, 1748, a committee of this House came to the following resolution. Resolved, that is the opinion of this committee, that it is just and reasonable that the several provinces and colonies of Massachusetts Bay, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island be reimbursed the expenses they have been at taking and securing to the crown of great britain the island of cape breton and its dependencies the expenses were immense for such colonies they were above two hundred thousand pounds sterling money first raised and advanced on their public credit on the twenty eighth of january seventeen fifty six a message from the king came to us to this effect His Majesty, being sensible of the zeal and vigor with which his faithful subjects of certain colonies in North America have exerted themselves in defense of His Majesty's just rights and possessions, recommends it to this House to take the same into their consideration, and to enable His Majesty to give them such assistance as may be a proper reward and encouragement. On the 3rd of February, 1756, the House came to a suitable resolution, expressing words nearly the same as those of the Message, but with further addition that the money then voted was an encouragement to the colonies to exert themselves with vigor. It will not be necessary to go through all the testimonies which your own records have given to the truth of my resolutions. I will only refer you to the places in the journals. Volume 27, 16th and 19th May, 1757. Volume 28, June 1st, 1758, April 26th and 30th, 1759, March 26th and 31st, and April 28th, 1760, January 9th and 20th, 1761, Volume 29, January 22nd and 26th, 1762, March 14th and 17th, 1763. Sir, here is a repeated acknowledgement to Parliament that the colonies not only gave, but gave to satiety. This nation has formally acknowledged two things. First, that the colonies had gone beyond their abilities, Parliament having thought it necessary to reimburse them. Secondly, that they acted legally and laudably in their grants of money and their maintenance of troops, since the compensation is expressly given as reward and encouragement. Reward is not bestowed for acts that are unlawful, and encouragement is not held out to things that deserve reprehension. My resolution, therefore, does nothing more than collect into one proposition what is scattered through your journals. I give you nothing but your own, and you cannot refuse in the gross what you have so often acknowledged in detail. The admission of this, which will be so honorable to them and to you, will, indeed, be mortal to all the miserable stories by which the passions of the misguided people have been engaged in an unhappy system. The people heard, indeed, from the beginning of these disputes, one thing continually dinned in their ears. That reason and justice demanded that the Americans, who paid no taxes, should be compelled to contribute. How did that fact of paying nothing stand when the taxing system began? When Mr. Grenville began to form a system of American revenue, he stated in this House that the colonies were then in debt £2,600,000 sterling money, and was of opinion that they would discharge that debt in four years. On this state, those untaxed people were actually subject to the payment of taxes to the amount of 650000 a year. In fact, however, Mr. Grenville was mistaken. The funds given for sinking the debt did not prove quite so ample as both the colonies and he expected. The calculation was too sanguine. The reduction was not completed till some years after at different times in different colonies. However, the taxes after the war continued too great to bear any addition with prudence or propriety and when the burdens imposed in consequence of former requisitions were discharged, our tone became too high to resort again to requisition. No colony since that time ever has had any requisition whatsoever made to it. We see the sense of the Crown and the sense of Parliament on the protective nature of our revenue by grant. And I search the same journals for the produce of the revenue by imposition. Where is it? Let us know the volume in the page. What is the gross? What is the net produce? To what service is it applied? How have you appropriated its surplus? What can none of the many skilful index makers that we are now employing find any trace of it? Well, let them and that rest together. But are the journals which say nothing of the revenue as silent on the discontent? Oh, no! A child may find it. It is the melancholy burthen and blot of every page. I think then I am, from those journals, justified in the sixth and last resolution, which is. That it hath been found by experience that the manner of granting the said supplies and aids by the said general's assemblies have been more agreeable to the said colonies and more beneficial and conducive to the public service than the mode of giving and granting aids in Parliament to be raised and paid in the said colonies. This makes the whole of the fundamental part of the plan. The conclusion is irresistible. You cannot say that you are driven by any necessity to an exercise of the utmost rights of legislature. You cannot assert that you took on yourself the task of imposing colony taxes from the want of another legal body that is competent to the purpose of supplying the exigencies of the state without wounding the prejudices of the people. Neither is it true that the body so qualified and having the competence had neglected the duty. The question now on all this accumulated matter is whether you will choose to abide by a profitable experience or a mischievous theory; whether you will choose to build on imagination or fact, whether you prefer enjoyment or hope, satisfaction in your subjects, or discontent. If these propositions are accepted, everything which has been made to enforce a contrary system must, I take it for granted, follow along with it. On the ground, I have drawn the following resolution, which, when it comes to be moved, will naturally be divided in a proper manner that it may be proper to repeal an act made in the seventh year of the reign of his present majesty, entitled an act for granting certain duties in the British colonies and plantations in America, for allowing a drawback of the duties of customs upon the exportation from this kingdom of coffee and coconuts of the produce of the said colonies or plantations, for discontinuing the drawbacks payable on China earthenware exported to America, for more effectually preventing the clandestine running of goods in the said colonies and plantations, and that it may be proper to repeal an act made in the fourteenth year of the reign of his present majesty, entitled an act to discontinue in such manner and for such time as are therein mentioned the landing and discharging, lading or shipping of goods, wares and merchandise at the town and within the harbor of Boston and the province of Massachusetts Bay in North America. That it may be proper to repeal an act made in the 14th year of the reign of His Present Majesty entitled An Act for the Impartial Administration of Justice in the Cases of Persons Questioned for Any Acts Done by Them in the Execution of the Law or for the Suppression of Riots and Tumults in the Province of Massachusetts Bay in New England. That it may be proper to repeal an act made in the 14th year of the reign of His Present Majesty entitled An Act for the Better Regulating of the Government of the Province of Massachusetts Bay in New England. And also, that it may be proper to explain and amend an act made in the thirty-fifth year of the reign of king henry the eighth entitled an act for the trial of treasons committed out of the king's dominions i wish sir to repeal the boston court bill because independently of the dangerous precedent of suspending the right to the subject during the king's pleasure it was passed as I apprehend with less regularity and on more partial principles than it ought the corporation of Boston was not heard before it was condemned. Other towns, fellow as guilty as she was, have not had their ports blocked up. Even the restraining bill of the present session does not go to the length of the Boston Port Act. The same ideas of prudence, which induced you not to extend equal punishment to equal guilt, even when you were punishing, induced me, who me not to chastise but to reconcile, to be satisfied with the punishment already partially inflicted. Ideas of prudence and accommodation to circumstances prevent you from taking away the charters of Connecticut and Rhode Island, as you have taken away that of Massachusetts Bay, though the Crown has far less power in the two former provinces than it enjoyed in the latter, and though the abuses have been full as great and as flagrant in the exempted as in the punished. The same reasons of prudence and accommodation have weight with me in restoring the charter of Massachusetts Bay. Besides, sir... The Act, which changes the Charter of Massachusetts, is in many particulars so exceptionable that if I did not wish absolutely to repeal, I would by all means desire to alter it, as several of its provisions tend to the subversion of all public and private justice. Such among others is the power in the Governor to change the Sheriff at his pleasure to make a new returning officer for every special cause. It is shameful to behold such a regulation standing among English laws. The act for bringing persons accused of committing murder under the orders of government to England for trial is but temporary. That act has calculated the probable duration of our quarrel with the colonies, and is accommodated to that supposed duration. I would hasten the happy moment of reconciliation, and therefore must, on my principle, get rid of that most justly obnoxious act. The act of Henry VIII, for the trial of treasons, I do not mean to take away, but to confine it to its proper bounds and original intention, to make it expressly for trial of treasons, and the greatest treasons may be committed in places where the jurisdiction of the Crown does not extend. Having guarded the privileges of local legislature, I would next secure to the colonies a fair and unbiased judicature, for which purpose, sir, I propose the following resolution, that, from the time when the General Assembly or General Court of any colony or plantation in North America shall have appointed by act of assembly duly confirmed a settled salary to the offices of the Chief Justice and other judges of the Superior Court. It may be proper that the said Chief Justice and other judges of the Superior courts of such colony shall hold his and their office and offices during their good behavior and shall not be removed therefrom but when the said removal shall be adjudged by His Majesty and Counsel. Upon a hearing on complaint from the General Assembly, or on a complaint from the Governor, or Council, or the House of Representatives, severally, or of the colony in which the said Chief Justice and other judges have exercised the said offices. The next resolution relates to the Courts of Admiralty. It is this that it may be proper to regulate the courts of admiralty or vice-admirality authorized by the fifteenth chapter of the fourth of george the third in such a manner as to make the same more commodious to those who sue or are sued in the said courts and to provide for the more decent maintenance of the judges in the same these courts i do not wish to take away they are themselves proper establishments this court is one of the capital securities of the act of navigation the extent of its jurisdiction, indeed, has been increased, but this is altogether as proper, and is indeed on many accounts more eligible, where new powers were wanted than a court absolutely new. But courts, incommodiously situated, in effect deny justice, and a court partaking in the fruits of its own condemnation is a robber. A Congress complain, and complain justly, of this grievance. These are the three consequential propositions I have thought of two or three more, but they come rather too near detail and to the province of executive government, which I wish Parliament always to superintend, never to assume. If the first six are granted, congruity will carry the latter three. If not, the things that remain unrepealed will be, I hope, rather unseemly encumbrances on the building, than very materially detrimental to its strength and stability. Here sir, I should close. But I plainly perceive some objections remaining which I ought, if possible, to remove. The first will be that, in resorting to the doctrine of our ancestors as contained in the preamble to the Chester Act, I prove too much that the grievance for a want of representation stated in that preamble goes to the whole of legislation as well to taxation, and that the colonies grounding themselves upon that doctrine will apply it to all parts of legislative authority to this objection, with all possible deference and humility, and wishing as little as any man living to impair the smallest particle of our supreme authority, I answer that the words are the words of Parliament and not mine, that all false and inconclusive inferences drawn from them are not mine, for I heartily disclaim any such inference. I have chosen the words of an act of Parliament which Mr. Grenville, surely a tolerably zealous and very judicious, advocate for the sovereignty of Parliament, formerly moved to have read at your table in confirmation of his tenets. It is true that Lord Chatham considered these preambles as declaring strongly in favour of his opinions. He was a no less powerful advocate for the privileges of the Americans. Ought I not from hence to presume that these preambles are as favourable as possible to both, properly understood, favourable both to the rights of Parliament and to the privilege of dependencies of this Crown? But, sir, the object of grievance in my resolution, I have not taken from the Chester, but from the Durham Act, which confines the hardship of want of representation to the case of subsidies, and which therefore falls in exactly with the case of the colonies. But whether the unrepresented counties were de jure or de facto bound, the preambles do not accurately distinguish. Nor indeed was it necessary, for whether de jure or de facto, the legislature thought the exercise of the power of taxing as of right or as a fact without right, equally a grievance and equally oppressive. I do not know that the colonies have, in any general way or in any cool hour, gone much beyond the demand of humanity in relation to taxes. It is not fair to judge of the temper or dispositions of any man or any set of men when they are composed and at rest from their conduct or their expressions in a state of disturbance and irritation. It is besides a very great mistake to imagine that mankind follow out practically any speculative principle either of government or of freedom as far as it will go in argument and logical elation. We Englishmen stop very short of the principles upon which we support any given part of our Constitution, or even the whole of it together. I could easily, if I have not already tired you, giving you more striking and convincing instances of it. This is nothing but what is natural and proper. All government, indeed every human benefit and enjoyment, every virtue, and every prudent act is founded on compromise and barter. We balance inconveniences, we give and take, we remit some rights that we may enjoy others, and we choose rather to be happy citizens than subtle disputants. As you must give away some natural liberty to enjoy civil advantages, so you must sacrifice some civil liberties for the advantages to be derived from the communion and fellowship of a great empire. But, in all fair dealings, the thing bought must bear some proportion to the purchase paid. None will barter away the immediate jewel of his soul. Though a great house is apt to make slaves haughty, yet it is purchasing a part of the artificial importance of a great empire, too dear to pay for it all essential rights and all the intrinsic dignity of human nature none of us would not risk his life rather than fall under a government purely arbitrary. But although there are some amongst us who think our Constitution wants many improvements to make it a complete system of liberty, perhaps none who are of that opinion would think it right to aim at such improvement by disturbing his country and risking everything that is dear to him. In every arduous enterprise we consider what we are to lose as well as what we are to gain and the more and better stake of liberty every people possess, the less they will hazard in a vain attempt to make it more. These are the cords of man. Man acts from adequate motives relative to his interest, and not on metaphysical speculations. Aristotle, the great master of reasoning, cautions us, and with great weight and propriety, against this species of delusive geometrical accuracy in moral arguments, as the most fallacious of all sophistry. The americans will have no interest contrary to the grandeur and glory of england when they are not oppressed by the weight of it and they will rather be inclined to respect the acts of a superintending legislature when they see them the acts of that power which is itself the security not the rival of their secondary importance and this assurance by mind most perfectly acquiesces and i confess i feel not the least alarm from the discontents which are to arise from putting people at their ease nor do i apprehend the destruction of this empire from giving by an act of free grace and indulgence to two millions of my fellow citizens some share of those rights upon which i have always been taught to value myself it is said indeed that this power of granting invested in american assemblies would dissolve the unity of the empire which was preserved entire although wales and chester and durham were added to it Truly, Mr. Speaker, I do not know what this unity means, nor has it ever been heard of that I know in the constitutional policy of this country. The very idea of subordination of parts excludes this notion of simple and undivided unity. England is the head, but she is not the head in the members too. Ireland has ever had from the beginning a separate but not an independent legislature which, far from distracting, promoted the union of the whole. Everything was sweetly and harmoniously disposed through both islands for the conservation of English dominion and the communication of English liberties. I do not see that the same principles might not be carried into twenty islands and with the same good effect. This is my model with regard to America as far as the internal circumstances of the two countries are the same. I know no other unity of this empire that I can draw from its example during these periods, when it seemed, to my poor understanding, more united than it is now or than it is likely to be by the present methods. But since I speak of these methods, I recollect, Mr. Speaker, almost too late, that I promised before I finished to say something of the proposition of the noble Lord on the floor, which has been so lately received and stands in your journals. I must be deeply concerned, whenever it is my misfortune, to continue a difference with the majority of this house. But as the reasons for that difference are my apology for thus troubling you, suffer me to state them in a very few words. I shall compress them into as small a body as I possibly can, having already debated that matter at large when the question was before the committee. First, then, I cannot admit that proposition of a ransom by auction, because it is a mere project. It is a thing new, unheard of, supported by no experience, justified by no analogy, without example of our ancestors or root in the Constitution. It is neither regular parliamentary taxation nor colony grant. Experimentum in vili is a good rule which will ever make me adverse to any trial of experiments on what is certainly the most valuable of all subjects, the peace of this empire. Secondly, it is an experiment which must be fatal in the end to our constitution. What is it but a scheme for taxing the colonies in the antechamber of the noble lord and his successors? To settle the quotas and proportions in this house is clearly impossible. You, sir, may flatter yourself you shall sit a state auctioneer. With your hammer in your hand, and knock down each colony as it bids. But to settle on the plan laid down by the noble lord the true proportional payment for four or five and twenty governments, according to the absolute and the relative wealth of each, according to the British proportion of wealth and burthen, is a wild and chimerical notion. This new taxation must therefore come in by the back door of the Constitution. Each quota must be brought to this house ready formed, neither add nor alter you must register it. You can do nothing further, for on what grounds can you deliberate either before or after the proposition? You cannot hear the council for all these provinces, quarrelling each on its own quantity of payment its proportion to others if you should attempt it. The Committees of Provincial Ways and Means, or by whatever other name it shall delight to be called, must swallow up all the time of Parliament. Thirdly, it does not give satisfaction to the complaint of the colonies. They complain that they are taxed without their consent. You answer, that you will fix the sum at which they shall be taxed. That is, you will give them the very grievance for the remedy. You tell them, indeed, that you will leave the mode to themselves. I really beg pardon. It gives me pain to mention it, but you must be sensible that you will not perform this part of the compact. For, suppose the colonies were to lay the duties, which furnish their contingent, upon the importation of your manufactures. You know you would never suffer such a tax to be laid, you know, too, that you will not suffer many other modes of taxation, so that, when you come to explain yourself, it will be found that you will neither leave to themselves the quantum, nor the mode, nor indeed anything. The whole is delusion from one end to the other. Fourthly, this method of ransom by auction, unless it be universally accepted, will plunge you into void and inexorable difficulties. In what year of our lord are the proportions of payments to be settled? to say nothing of the impossibility that colony agents should have general powers of taxing the colonies at their discretion. Consider, I implore you, that the communication by special messages and orders between these agents and their constituents on each variation of the case when the parties come to contend together to dispute on their relative proportions will be a matter of delay, perplexity, and confusion that never can have an end. If all the colonies do not appear without outcry, what is the condition of those assemblies who offer themselves or their agents to tax themselves up to your ideas of their proportion. For the refractory colonies who refuse all composition will remain taxed only to your old impositions, which, however grievous in principle, are trifling as to production. The beating colonies in this scheme are heavily taxed. The refractory remain unburdened. What will you do? Will you lay new and heavier taxes by parliament on the disobedient? Pray considering what way you can do it. You are perfectly convinced that, the way of taxing you can do nothing but at the ports i suppose it is virginia that refuses to appear at your auction while maryland and north carolina bid handsomely for their ransom and are taxed to your quota how do you put these colonies on a par do you tax the tobacco of virginia if you do you give its death wound to your english revenue at home and one of the very greatest articles of your own foreign trade If you tax the import of that rebellious colony what do you tax but your own manufactures or the goods of some other obedient and already well taxed colony who has said one word on this labyrinth of detail which bewilders you more and more as you enter into it who has presented who can present you with a clue to lead you out of it i think sir it is impossible that you should not recollect that the colony bounds are so implicated in one another you know it by your other experiments in the bill for prohibiting the new england fishery you can lay no possible restraints on almost any of them which may not be presently eluded. If you do not confound the innocent with the guilty, and burden those whom, upon every principle, you ought to exonerate. You must be grossly ignorant of America, who thinks that, without falling into the confusion of all rules of equity and policy, you will restrain any single colony, especially Virginia and Maryland, the central and most important of them all. Let it also be considered that, Either in the present confusion you settle a permanent contingent, which will and must be trifling, and then you have no effectual revenue, or you change the quota at every exigency, then on every new repetition, you will have a new quarrel. Reflect besides that when you fixed a quota for every colony, you do not provide for prompt and punctual payment. Suppose one, two, five, ten years arrears. You cannot issue a treasury extent against the failing colony. You must make new boston port bills new restraining laws new acts for dragging men to england for trial you must send out new fleets new armies all is to begin again from this day forward the empire is never to know an hour's tranquillity and intestine fire will be kept alive in the bowels of the colonies which one time or other must consume this whole empire I allow indeed that the Empire of Germany raises her revenue and her troops by quotas and contingents, but the revenue of the Empire and the army of the Empire is the worst revenue and the worst army in the world. Instead of a standing revenue, you will therefore have a perpetual quarrel. Indeed, the noble lord who proposed this project of a ransom by auction seems himself to be of that opinion. His project was rather designed for breaking the union of the colonies than for establishing a revenue. He confessed he apprehended that his proposal would not be to their taste. I say the scheme of disunion seems to be at the bottom of the project, for I will not suspect that the noble lord meant nothing but merely to delude the nation by an airy phantom which he never intended to realize. But whatever his views may be, as he proposed the peace and union of the colonies as the very foundation of my plan, it cannot accord with one whose foundation is perpetual discord. Compare the two. This I offer to give you is plain and simple. The other full of perplexed and intricate mazes. This is mild, that harsh. This is found by experience effectual for its purposes. The other is a new project. This is universal. The other calculated for certain colonies only. This is immediate in its conciliatory operation. The other remote, contingent, full of hazard. Mine is what becomes the dignity of a ruling people, gratuitous, unconditional, and not held out as a matter of bargain and sale. I have done my duty in proposing it to you. I have indeed tired you by a long discourse, but this is the misfortune of those to whose influence nothing will be conceded, and who must win every inch of their ground by argument. You have heard me with goodness. May you decide with wisdom. For my part, I feel my mind greatly disburdened by what I have done today. I have been the less fearful of trying your patience, because on this subject I mean to spare it altogether in future. I have this comfort, in every stage of the American affairs I have steadily imposed the measures that have produced the confusion and may bring on the destruction of this empire, and I go so far as to risk a proposal of my own. If I cannot give peace to my country, I give it to my conscience." But what, says this financier, is peace to us without money? Your plan gives us no revenue. No, but it does, for it secures to the subject the power of refusal. The first of all revenues. Experience is a cheat and fact a liar. If this power and the subject of proportioning is grant, or of not granting at all, has not been found the richest mine of revenue ever discovered by the skill or by the fortune of man. It does not indeed vote you 152,750 pounds, eleven pence, twenty-three and four, nor any other paltry limited sum, but it gives the strong box itself the fund the bank from whence only revenues can arise amongst a people sensible of freedom. Posita luditer arca. Cannot you in England, cannot you at this time of day, cannot you a house of commons trust to the principle which has raised so mighty a revenue and accumulated a debt of nearly 140 million in this country? Is this principle to be true in England and false everywhere else? Is it not true in Ireland? Has it not hitherto been true in the colonies? Why should you presume that, in any country, a body duly constituted for any function will neglect perform performance duty and abdicate its trust? Such a presumption would go against old governments in all modes. But in truth, this dread of penury of supply from a free assembly has no foundation in nature. For first, observe that, besides the desire which all men have naturally of supporting the honor of their own government, that sense of dignity and that security to property, which ever attends freedom, has a tendency to increase the stock of the free community. Most may be taken where most is accumulated. And what is the soil or climate where experience has not uniformly proved that the voluntary flow of heaped-up plenty, bursting from the weight of its own rich luxuriance, has ever run with a more copious stream of revenue than could be squeezed in the dry husks of impressed Indigence by the straining of all the politic machinery in the world. Next, we know that parties must ever exist in a free country. We know, too, that the emulations of such parties, their contradictions, their reciprocal necessities, their hopes, and their fears, must send them all insurance to him that holds the balance of the stick. The parties are the gamesters, but government keeps the table and is sure to be the winner in the end. When this game is played, I really think it is more to be feared that the people will be exhausted than the government will not be supplied, whereas whatever is got by acts of absolute power ill-obeyed because odious or by contracts ill-kept because constrained will be narrow, feeble, uncertain, and precarious. Ease would retract vows made in pain as violent and void. I, for one, protest against compounding our demands. I declare against compounding For a poor limited sum, the immense, ever-growing, eternal debt which is due to a generous government from protected freedom. And so may I speed in the great object I propose to you, as I think it would not only be an act of injustice, but would be the worst economy in the world to compel the colonies to a sum certain, either in the way of ransom or in the way of compulsory compact. But to clear up my ideas on this subject, a revenue from America transmitted hither, do not delude yourselves, you can never receive it, no, not a shilling. We have experienced that from remote countries, it is not to be expected. If, when you attempted to extract revenue from Bengal, you were obliged to return and loan what you had taken in position, what can you expect from North America? Or certainly, if ever there was a country qualified to produce wealth, it is India. Where an institution fit for the transmission, it is the East India Company. America has none of these aptitudes. If America gives you taxable objects on which you lay your duties here, and gives you, at the same time, a surplus by a foreign sale of her commodities to pay the duties on these objects which you tax at home, she has performed her part to the British revenue. But with regard to her own internal establishments, she may, I dare not she will, contribute in moderation. I say in moderation, for she ought not to be permitted to exhaust herself. She ought to be reserved to a war, the weight of which, with the enemies that we are most likely to have, must be considerable in her quarter of the globe. There, she may serve you, and serve you essentially. For that service, for all service, whether of revenue, trade, or empire, my trust is in her interest in the British Constitution. My hold of the colonies is in the close affection which grows from common names, from kindred blood, from similar privileges, and equal protection. These are ties which, though light as air, are as strong as links of iron. the colonists always keep the idea of their civil rights associated with your government. They will cling and grapple to you, and no force under heaven will be of power to tear them from their allegiance. But let it be once understood that your government may be one thing and their privileges another, that these two things may exist without any mutual relation, the cement is gone. The cohesion is loosened, and everything hastens to decay and dissolution. As long as you have the wisdom to keep the sovereign authority of this country as the sanctuary of liberty, the sacred temple consecrated to our common faith, wherever the chosen race and sons of England worship freedom, they will turn their faces towards you. The more they multiply, the more friends you will have. The more ardently they love liberty, the more perfect will be their obedience. Slavery they can have anywhere. It is a weed that grows in every soil. They may have it from Spain, they may have it from Prussia. but. Until you become lost to all feeling of your true interest and your natural dignity, freedom they can have from none but you. This is the commodity of price of which you have the monopoly. This is the true act of navigation which binds to you the commerce of the colonies, and through them secures to you the wealth of the world. Deny them this participation of freedom, and you break that sole bond which originally made, and must still preserve, the unity of the empire. Do not entertain so weak an imagination, That your registers and your bonds, your affidavits and your sufferances, your cockettes and your clearances, are what form the great securities of your commerce. Do you not dream that your letters of office and your instructions and your suspending clauses are the things that hold together the great contexture of the mysterious whole? These things do not make your government. Dead instruments, passive tools as they are, it is the spirit of the English communion which gives all their life and efficacy to them the spirit of the English Constitution, which infused through the mighty mass, pervades, feeds, unites, invigorates, vivifies every part of the empire, even down to the minutest member. Is it not the same virtue which does everything for us here in England? Do you imagine then that it is the Land Tax Act which raises your revenue, that it is the annual vote in the Committee of Supply which gives you your army, or that it is the Mutiny Bill which inspires it with bravery and discipline? No, surely no! It is the love of the people, it is their attachment to their government, from the sense of the deep stake they have in such a glorious institution, which gives you your army and your navy, and infuses into both that liberal obedience, without which your army would be a base rabble, and your navy nothing but rotten timber. All this, I know well enough, will sound wild and chimerical to the profane herd of those vulgar mechanical politicians who have no place among us, a sort of people who think that nothing exists but what is gross and material, and who, therefore, far from being qualified to be directors of the great movement of empire, are not fit to turn a wheel in the machine. But to men, truly initiated and rightly taught, these ruling and master principles which, in the opinion of such men as I have mentioned, have no substantial existence, are in truth everything, and all in all magnanimity in politics is not seldom the truest wisdom and a great empire and little minds go ill together if we are conscious of our station and glow with zeal to fill our place as becomes our situation and ourselves we ought to auspicate all our public proceedings on america with the old warning of the church serve some corda we ought to elevate our minds to the greatness of that trust to which the order of providence has called us By inverting to the dignity of this high calling, our ancestors have turned a savage wilderness into a glorious empire. We've made the most extensive and the only honorable conquests, not by destroying, but by promoting the wealth, the number, the happiness of the human race. Let us get an American revenue as we have got an American empire. English privileges have made it all that it is, English privileges alone will make it all it can be. In full confidence of this unalterable truth, I now quote, Felix Fostuncasi, lay the first stone of the Temple of Peace, and I move you, that the colonies and plantations of Great Britain in North America, consisting of fourteen separate governments and containing two millions and upwards of free inhabitants, have not had the liberty and privilege of electing and sending any knights and burgesses or others to represent them in the High Court of Parliament. End of speech. This speech read aloud by Aaron Cotton.